Father, we do pray for just a lot of the things that are going on. Uh, the economy's hard, so in, there's just families that can't even um, pay the bills, and there's ministries and people in ministry around town that can't pay the bills, and it's just a difficult situation. And, and uh, I would just ask that you would give us the faith to, to really believe that you're in this somehow and that you can bring beauty from ashes. Uh, that when we're weak, there's a sense in which we're strong because we lean harder into you. And so I just pray that you would give us that ability, that you'd still our, our souls, that you would quiet us and, and draw us toward you, that we would lean hard into you and all the things that are going on in our lives. And Father, and if we don't know you, I just pray that you would just seek us out and draw us to yourself and just chase us down and not let us get away because the happiness we need, the, the holes that are in our heart, all of those things come back to our relationship with you. And we pray this and commit this morning to you in Christ's name. Amen. If you can, just turn to John chapter 3. We're continuing our series in John. We'll be in John chapter 3. If you do have your Bible with you this morning, you'll want to turn there because we'll be in and out of uh, a, a good chunk of Scripture for quite a while. So John chapter 3. <clears throat> And it's interesting, we're looking at a pretty famous chunk of scripture here uh, that includes John 3.16. Now, did you know that on January 9th of this year, John 3.16 was the top Google search in America? Any idea why? Tebow. That's pretty good. <laughs> All right. Yeah, because the night before, Tim Tebow, quarterback, for Florida, I think we got a picture here, um, had John 3.16 under his eyes, and he was the offensive MVP. Uh, he was, I think, the first sophomore ever to get the Heisman um, two years ago, one year ago, whatever it was. But so on uh, Thursday night, J- uh, January 8th, this was Tim Tebow, and on Friday morning, the, the most searched string on Google was John 3.16. And I think one of the reasons it was searched is because no one knows what it means anymore. Which is uh, saying a lot because this is a, a, there's a long line of using, especially in sports arenas, John 3.16 as a symbol. Here's a guy that kind of made it famous. Um, he's the Rainbow Man. Roland Stewart, okay? Roland Stewart, if you remember, uh, came on the scene in the late... 70s uh, into the 80s and was kind of the guy that made famous the whole John 316 banner. And he went from sports event to sports event trying to figure out ways to get in the camera with his John 316. He actually got uh, arrested in the 1980 Olympics. I think it was Moscow or whatnot. Um, The Russians arrested him trying to do whatever. But sports game to sports game to sports game. And so if you were watching sporting events in the late 70s or 80s, you would remember Roland Stewart, the Rainbow Man. Here, I just want to read briefly some interesting things. Um, in the late 1980s, he began a string of stink bomb attacks. Targets included Robert Schuller's Crystal Cathedral, the Orange County Register, and the Trinity Broadcasting Network. Um, the stated attempt of these uh, attacks at the American Music Awards was to show the public that, quote-unquote, God thinks this stinks. Uh, it gets even crazier. So Stewart was arrested in 1992 
After a standoff in a California hotel during which he entered a vacant room with two men he was attempting to kidnap and surprised a chambermaid who then locked herself in the bathroom. Reportedly, Stewart believed that the rapture was due to arrive in six days, and during the standoff, he threatened to shoot at airplanes taking off from the nearby uh, LAX airport. He also covered the hotel room with uh, windows with John 316 placards. Roland is currently serving three consecutive life sentences in jail on kidnapping charges. Um, just interesting stuff, right? So John 316 shows up in a lot of places. We see uh, merchandise with John 3.16 on it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have eternal life. We're going to, all of us probably know it if we know it in the King James because it's one of those great King James verses. And it shows up uh, in in even better places. (laughs) My favorite, okay. Now the interesting thing about using John 3.16 as a symbol this way, it's, it's thrown out there as a hook, as a symbol. And why it, it's, it's treated that way is because it's probably the most famous verse in all of the Bible. If you go to topverses.com, there's actually a kind of Bible tracker thing where it tells you the most searched Bible verses. This is the number one most searched Bible verse. Uh, it's probably the most famous. It's, it's the gospel in a nutshell is what a lot of people call it. And so of all of the Bible verses in all of the scriptures, the Christian scriptures, this is famous for really containing the essence of the gospel. And so it's used as a symbol to be put out there. And the idea in using it as a symbol like this, I think, is a lot like what the idea is with this sign. We hang John 3.16 out there at sporting events or wherever it's public or where a lot of people are going to see it because I think deep down, uh, hopefully we're not like Roland Stewart wanting to get attention, but I think a lot of us that would use it that way, the motive is to say, I'm going to, to show you the essence of what it means to be a Christian or that God loves you by hanging this kind of um, little sign out there, this symbol. Now, the thing about symbols is that they can get overused, and when they get overused, they become cliche. And so John 3.16, in some sense, in American culture, has become that thing that says to you when you see it, or, or to your friend or your neighbor or whoever, the guy sitting next to you on the bus, that says to you, what? Those Christians are at it again. Or why do they got to hang this everywhere? Or give me a break already. Or yeah, 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 um, let's get to something new already. Or I've seen it before. Or uh, it says a lot of things because it's now become a symbol. And the problem is in making John 3.16 a symbol, we lose the story or the content that's, that's carried in this whole interaction between Jesus in um, Nicodemus. We lose the content of the story and we deal with it almost at a political level as a symbol of this movement or this group called Christians. We're, we, we're well aware of symbols and, and, uh, and slogans and things like that. And whenever you hear it, you know what group is associated with it. Right? If I said the word hope, what would you immediately think of? 
or change. Obama, which is what? Politics. Um, you know, I even <laughs> there's a lot of phrases we could go through. Read my lips became a political statement. I, these things become a political statement, and in politics or in religion, there's groups that are on the inside and groups that are on the outside, and what it begins to do is mark off a boundary line rather than necessarily conveying the essence of what's behind the symbol. Does that make sense? So we lose the story. What I want to do this morning is take us back to the story, not only of Jesus with Nicodemus, but also of the whole grand story of salvation that's kind of carried in this little interaction between Jesus and Nicodemus. We want to go back to the story and really feel what's going on and hear the message. And it's a fascinating story because it's so short. I think some of the most powerful messages in the world, uh, John 3.16, I think is like, I counted them. And then I already forgot. It's like less than a dozen words. I have no idea. Someone count it for me. I counted it and forgot. It's what sleep deprivation does to you. Um, it's, it's so few words. This story with Nicodemus is not even really like a whole chapter. And some of the best, most powerful things come kind of packaged that way. The, the Gettysburg Address, when Lincoln goes and he kind of commissions this cemetery for all that had fallen at Gettysburg, right? He goes up and he follows a guy that talked for over two hours. And he gets up there and he basically talks for two minutes and I think it's like ten sentences. It's a short, compact message, but it's all in there. The whole narrative of this war being bigger than than just states' rights, and it's about justice, and we're going to become a nation that gets united kind of after this conflict, and it's the whole message buried in there in so few words. And here's what we see with Jesus teaching Nicodemus. So if you're in John 3, we're going to hop into it. It's not on the screen, but I'll kind of try and, try and uh, really give the context as we're going through it. And it follows on the, the, the heels of John chapter 2, where Jesus kind of concludes about the Pharisees in Jerusalem, about the kind of elite religious people, that they don't get it. And he, in verse 24 of chapter 2, And Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. And he did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. And now the chapters and the verses weren't in the original uh, text of of the, the New Testament. They were inserted later. So the idea here is, is just going to, this is a narrative that just continues on. So Jesus knows what's in a man. And then the very next sentence is, now there was a man. And it sets up this whole dialogue of Jesus and Nicodemus, where Jesus is trying to really get at the heart of the issue. And he says, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. And he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, which is profound, Because here's one of the teachers of Israel. And he comes to Jesus not like a lot of the other teachers uh, or the Pharisees or the the rulers that would come to him in the temple courts and argue with him that were against him. This guy comes at night and he's inquisitive and he wants to learn and he's hungry in some sense. And he comes and and as a teacher of Israel, he says, he says, Rabbi, which means teacher. He says, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the miraculous signs you're doing 
if God were not with him. And in reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. (laughs) Can you imagine a guy that's proud at night coming to this guy that all your friends are against and, and has this reputation? You come to him and say, man, I know, I know you're a teacher and, and you're going through all these motions and kind of humbling yourself. And the very first thing the guy says back to you is, tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. <laughs> you know, how, how about hello? <laughs> hey, Nicodemus, I'm glad you came. You know, that's really big of you. You know, Jesus goes right at the core of the message. And it's, it's amazing, I think, I think those short little works, like the Gettysburg Address, like this chapter, John chapter 3, where there's an authority going right at an issue, you just don't mince words, you just get right after it. And Jesus is saying, I'm not playing around with this guy. I'm going to tell him exactly what he needs to hear, the most important thing that he needs to hear. And that's no one's going to see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Why does he say that to this guy? Well, see, the guy's coming in as a Pharisee, and what he understands to be true is that being of the lineage of Abraham, being a Jew, that he has the ability and is living this out to be ethical, moral, and religiously good. And because of that, because of what he was born into and how he's choosing to live, that now he's going to get to see God, that he will be righteous that way. And Jesus comes right at him because he knows what's in a man's heart and says, you know what, no one gets to see God unless they're born again. It's not being born into the right thing and just living a certain kind of ethical life in and of yourself. Unless there's a transformation that's supernatural, nobody gets to see God. Now here's what I think is, um, is really interesting about this. What would you say most of uh, your friends or even you would say if I asked this question um, are you going to go to heaven I think most people when you ask I know because I've asked a lot of people that question most people when you ask them that question say yeah I believe I'm going to go to heaven why is God going to let you in to heaven to be with him and you know what answer I've heard more than anything else in my life when, when that question is asked I'm a good person. You know, there's not that much separating us from Nicodemus because I think that's the, the natural human thing is to go, you know what? All things considered, not, not so bad. I remember when I helped someone last year across the street and about two years ago, I remember when I picked up some trash on the road, it wasn't even my trash. You know, I remember when I went somewhere and I was about to throw something away and then I saw a recycle bin and I recycled. Um, so when I, when I go to heaven and I see God, I'm a, I'm a good person. He's going to let me in. There's not much difference between, uh, if Jesus came today, I think the thing he would go at right away is, look, that is not the issue. Nobody gets to see the kingdom of God unless he or she is born again. Nicodemus, like us, kind of has this assumption of goodness built into him. Let's continue on. It says, Nicodemus says this. He says, how can a man be born 
when he is old. He's never heard this phrase like we've heard this phrase, right? How, how can a man be born again when he's old? Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. So he's taking Jesus very literal here. Very literal. And Jesus answers, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you, you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. And so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. You have to be born again, says Jesus. Now the fascinating thing is, this phrase, born again, it, it's another cliche. Has become another cliche. It's like the song that's new on the radio. That's, you guys remember Achy Breaky Heart? You guys remember that? I used to try and, when I was, I was a real devil when I was like in my 20s, not a nice person, early 20s, um, before, yeah, before I was born again. I never used cliche that way, but um, I used to try to annoy people on purpose, right? Uh, so I would like um, sing stuff like Achy Breaky Heart, just kind of start humming it, and then see how many people, like I could get it in their heads, you know, and they get angry, like you plant, planted a seed in their mind, and now they're frustrated because it's in the middle of like a final and, and engineering, and, and they're like, come and achy break your heart, and they get mad at you, right? I used to do a lot of little things like that just to try to annoy people. Um, but good things, everyone jumps on the bandwagon, and then they, the pendulum swings where there's a knee jerk, and then you begin to react against it because it, it becomes almost too popular. And so this phrase, born again, you, you know, a lot of us have grown up with it, but the fascinating thing is, the American usage of it, popular usage of it, really began in the 70s uh, with, with the Jesus movement. Jesus movement down in the California area, if you remember, um, we have some people in our church that came from that. But Ed Underwood, who talked at the two-year anniversary, and he's going to be speaking again first weekend of May, he's writing a book on this because he got saved in the Jesus movement. And he's trying to talk about how the Jesus movement um, lost their way and got sidetracked, you know, and started buying into the whole cultural Christianity, or it's all about me and just whatever. And, and this Jesus movement, this raw energy, was different than the cultural Christianity that day. I mean, this is a campus crusade and young life and all these things were a part of that. There's this explosion of passionate people whose lives are transformed, radical conversions, and they started using this phrase, born again. There's a difference, a transformation. I'm new. I'm born again. And so that phrase kind of comes on the scene. In 1976, Chuck Colson, who was thrown into prison because of uh, his part in covering, he's the only one thrown into prison for his part in covering up on Watergate, uh, and in prison becomes a Christian, reading C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, just so you know. Um, I really am a fan of Lewis. Uh, but he, he becomes a Christian in prison, comes out, and he writes this kind of spiritual autobiography, and he calls it, Born again. It's 1976. So this born again thing begins becoming the lingo like in a, an amazingly quick way to the degree that um, G, uh, Jimmy Carter, in an interview as the presidential, presidential candidate in 76, uses the phrase, I'm a born again Christian. You want to know the irony? It's the first time a presidential candidate had ever been interviewed by Playboy. Real irony, but so 
the the thing is, is this phrase "born again" just comes uh, explodes into the American kind of cultural thing, becomes equated with evangelical or Protestant or Pentecostal Christianity, fundamentalist Christianity, gets equated uh, equated with it to the degree that now if you are a professing kind of Christian, you are a born-again Christian. Those are synonymous. Those are synonymous. So George Barna did a study, and, um, and the report is titled Born Again Christians Just as Likely to Blankety Blank as Non-Christians. And the statistics are, are quite fascinating. It's only 9% of evangelicals tithe. Only 9% of evangelicals tithe. And the whole idea of your pocketbook really shows what's in your heart, right? That's the whole idea there. Gives a couple statistics about morality that are just absolutely appalling. And then it says this, which I thought was really fascinating. White evangelicals are more likely than Catholics to object to having black neighbors. So 45% of Americans say they've been born again. And what's happened is, if you just are a cultural Christian, you just adopt this kind of tired phrase, born again, but there's really no transformation in your life. There's nothing different, certainly not the kinds of things that you'd expect to see from somebody that had been reborn from above, not of flesh, but of spirit, into a new creation, a new life that's going to reflect the maker. Uh, the whole idea here is transformation. I was at camp. When I first got um, saved, I went and worked at a Christian camp, and I was just green as all get out. And the first summer there, you know, I was figuring out a lot of things. I've, I've joked before about buying a Bible that was on like 70% discount at the bookstore there. They'd asked... Ax- accidentally misordered it with the apocrypha in it and all this and I, I saw it and I was like I had no idea that, what the apocrypha was but it's you know books that aren't in the Protestant Bible whatever but I found this thing I'm like no way there's extra books you know and I was like what a deal like I'm getting like bonus books in the Bible and I like bought it you know or my friend bought it for me kind of thing and we're like all excited I had nothing knew nothing we went, to, we went down to Big Bear Lake. I remember we were sitting by, on this picnic bench. Went down with like six or seven. These are all Bible college students that are working up there. We go down there, and I'm like, hey, let's go have a Bible study. And they're all like, okay, what do you mean? I'm like, I don't know what I mean. I've just heard that lingo before. Let's go have a Bible study. And they're like, all right. So we drive down to the lake, and we sit at this picnic bench, and I open up my Bible. And I'm like, let's read a book. And they're like, just watching me. So I turned to James. Never read James before, the, the letter of James in the New Testament. And if you've ever, I, I mean, if everyone could have that experience of reading the book of James for the first time, um, it's like reading Lord of the Rings for the first time. Like it's never the same afterwards, right? No connection there. But I, uh, I start reading James, and there's like these six Bible college students, and I'm like reading it. If anyone asks for wisdom, God will give them. And I'm like, no way, you know, and, and I'm just like, you know what this means, and I'm like, going, think of the possibilities, and I'm, I'm like getting all animated, and they, I mean, seriously thought I was, was just lost it, these Bible college students just thought I'd lost it, and it went on and on, and finally, like, I realized they're looking at me strange, like I'm, like I'm an idiot, I had no idea why they were looking at me strange, I thought this was normal, it's what having a Bible study means, right, you know, and and the idea here is, I learned something there. 
I've seen it a lot of other times. Jesus talks about the potential to become complacent and lose your first love. Kind of that amazing rebirth, newness, new creation. I don't have to care about the things of the old, play the old games. Like, my life is totally, totally radically different and going in different directions. It's just so exciting. And there's this whole difference of transformation, right? And I'm sure some of you have experienced that or seen it at least. And that's what this whole born-again thing was about, man. Now it's like the fruit of the Spirit is going to start coming, right? Um, Love, joy, peace, patience, those kinds of things. And isn't this amazing? And we've reduced this born-again thing, this kind of new state of being, to just a a cultural affiliation. Sure, uh, I'm a coffee drinker. And uh, I watch 24 and, uh, you know, I live in the suburbs. And, oh, yeah, I'm a born-again Christian, too. Um, it's just become this meaningless, vacuous term. It's just so not what Jesus was going at. Jesus was saying it's not because you're good or ethical. There's something radical that has to happen here. Radical and transforming between you and God. At you as an individual. And you can hide in the group, you Pharisee. Or you can hide in a group, you Israelite or a Christian. But... The whole idea here is that you yourself would be born again from on high, that God would birth you again, you'd be a new creation. Man, it would radically transform you. And just think of what it would be like if everyone that actually called themselves born again actually lived as if they were truly transformed. Jesus goes on and says, after Nicodemus asked, how can this be? And he he said, you are Israel's teacher, and you do not understand these things? You've just gotten into the middle of the current, and you're kind of just going with the obvious, and you have no idea that the big picture here is just, is just there, that God radically wants to transform you in a spiritual way. Where is he getting this from? There's a couple of verses in Ezekiel that have to do with a heart of stone being turned to a heart of flesh. Ezekiel eleven nineteen. I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them, and I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Ezekiel 36, 26. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. And I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And Ezekiel goes on and he talks about the valley of the dry bones where God's kind of given them this picture of dry bones. And, and then they like come up, and, but they're not alive yet. And then the wind kind of comes and animates these dry bones. And they come back to life. And this whole metaphor of God saying, I'm the one that raises things back up. I'm the one that breathes life into it. And this army of people, these dry bones that have come to life, is kind of the resurgence of what I want to do with the house of Israel, and I'm going to do it. And this is the Old Testament. This is what this Pharisee would have known, yet he doesn't see the obvious, and he's fixated on the things that he can control, his ethics and his morality and the club that he's associated with. Reminds me, um, no connection again, but it reminds me of... uh, like one of the very few like Holmes and Watson jokes that I know. Um, you, you ever ha- heard any of those? You know, um, Sherlock Holmes says to Watson, uh, they're out camping and they're laying on their backs. And in the middle of the night, he says to to um, Watson, Watson, look up and tell me what you see. And Watson says, you know, I see that the Big Dipper is in the sky. I see that from the clouds that the weather tomorrow is going to be a little bit stormy. Uh, I see that we're in the whatever season based on the constellations. And, uh, and 
he looks over at Sherlock Holmes and says, why, what do you see? And Holmes says, <laughs> uh, Watson, you idiot, someone stole our tent. <laughs> and, um, and I think sometimes we miss the, just the broad, I think that ties in, I don't know if it does, but I think that the Pharisees or us, we, 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 get, we get into life and the routine and our habits, we miss the bigger picture that God is doing something and bringing us back to himself. He created us in the first place. He's going to create us in the second place. In the first place, we are still estranged from God. In the second place, we're with God. And when we're with God, we're going to reflect God. And so think of the difference in those statistics I shared with you about born again. And then let's look at 1 John, same writer here. In 1 John, look at the different ways that he uses to describe this kind of new life and this born-again experience. 1 John 2.29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. 1 John 3.9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. I have so many Christians come to me and say, what does it really matter if? It doesn't even make sense to me. You just, I mean, you're missing the whole idea that sinning leads you away from God, and away from God is absolutely the worst, darkest place to be. So, like, how far can I get away from God and happiness? Tell me, because I'd like to know so I could go there. Makes no sense to me. Does that make, I mean, here's God, here's happiness. So the question of how far can I get walking away from Him and still be okay, it's just a category mistake. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Nothing embarrasses me more than when I watch period pieces or even documentaries where I see um, prejudice going on by, by these pastors or so-called Christians. And you're just like, what in the world is going on? How can you go to church and, and think that you're a Christian and you really don't even understand what love is or, or value in humans around you? And in the, in the, I mean, love has to do with what's going on in their life. Caring about it, sacrifice for it. Just drive, I mean, hopefully it drives you crazy too because it's hard to explain that. 1 John 5, 4, Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So the things of the world and what's going on down here, if you want to get to the kingdom of God, your faith in Jesus Christ, so that you are born again, born anew, is the thing that, that helps you overcome the world and get out of it. And the whole idea is that we're too enamored with the world in America. You go to most places, I've been to Africa a couple times, and to them the world is sinking. It's just flat sinking. It's a pretty good thing to get out of the world and to get to where you're with God and looking ahead to your, your future hope. In America, we still think the world is grand and great. And so it's just like, oh man, can I still have some of this and that? Or can I have this now and then that later? We're like making these deals with God that are just absolutely ridiculous because we just don't accept the fact that the things of this world are worthless and that it's sinking. We're going to get to that a, a little bit later. But um, John 5.18 we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. So the idea of being born from, of God is that there's a radical transformation, and that it comes from God. And so we have this born-again language in conservative circles, in Protestant circles, 
Pentecostal circles, the, the Methodists use new life, uh, and they take on that phrase to mean the same thing. And there's an urgency to it. And so follow me as Jesus continues, and we begin to see a little bit of the urgency that comes. It says, how do you, Israel's teacher, not understand this? And I tell you the truth, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but you people do not accept our testimony. It's a political statement, you people. There's a whole category of people out there that are just closed off, not getting it. Um, quick time out. I'm, I don't work with my hands. I try to avoid it at all costs. Um, Justin makes fun of me at all times. Um, but I've been around enough like carpenters and like people that work with their hands to realize that if, if you really want to make two surfaces bond well together, the shinier and smoother those two surfaces are, the harder the, the time you're going to have. So you, you end up roughing up one surface and giving it some texture and some edges, and then you put some kind of an adhesive on it, and then you bond it, and it's actually going to stick. And so the, the thing of, of it is, is you people, the you people think they don't really need anything. We've got it all packaged and figured out we're good people. And, and God can't, Jesus can't really do anything with that. He's like, man, you Pharisees don't realize you're blind. You rich people don't realize how hard it is to be saved, like a camel going through the eye of the needle, um, on and on. And then he goes to all these misfits that are all rough and like just, messed up and and they get it you see they know they need something so he goes to those people and says man the kingdom of god is close to you guys all you got to do is believe and man this joint this bond is just going to be real easy here because you're all roughed up and you know you need god we walk up to christ and we think that there's a fork in the road and we're trying to make a, a decision god do i really follow christ and the Christians say, I have to if I'm going to be saved. Or do I go another way and try and pursue life that way? Well, I'd like to follow Christ, but I'd, really not, I'd, ra- I'd rather not go all in on that. You know, and we're, we're analyzing the decisions. And, and the fallacy here is that God, and the way Jesus expresses it, treats us as if we're in an emergency. We are under his wrath. We are drowning. We're in a, in a world that is perishing. We're in the middle of the ocean fighting for our lives. And God is trying to reach us, and he's throwing out this little life raft kind of a thing. And there's no decision about it. There's just grabbing hold of it in appreciation and just getting so excited that in this emergency and the urgency of it and the direness of it and you're struggling and, and flailing around that God has reached out and that you can grab hold of that. And it's not this like fork in the road, ah, let me evaluate it. And the rich person or the person that thinks he's too good or all that, they really step back and they don't get the situation they're in. And if they don't get that, they're not going to really value what God's doing in Jesus Christ. That wasn't in my notes. I should have kept going. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How will you believe if I speak to you of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven. Now here, here we really start to get the, the drums begin to pick up and we get to the meat of it. It says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Now I'll try and show you this parallel, but the idea is the Israelites are grumbling and complaining because of the manna. So God is providing, if you remember the story, they're like in the desert, wandering around and around, but God's providing them food, sustenance, all that they need. 
But they begin, begin complaining because they want more. They want better. They're just saying, it's not fair. Like if we were somewhere else, we could have better food. And they begin doing the not fair. And you notice that fairness and justice are two different things. I think if we understood that really well, it would help us a lot in life. But fairness and justice, two different things. And they're whining to God, it's not fair. They complain against the manna, and God sends like a plague on them. And so this is going on in Numbers, and it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, so they're getting bitten by snakes and getting killed. Snakes everywhere. So I mean, just think of being in a sea of snakes. Like some of you are freaked out right now. It's like your worst nightmare. The Indiana Jones movies, you know, where he's like in a sea of snakes, and they're biting and killing people. And God says to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard. I think that's where the medical image comes from. Is anyone like a doctor in here? Yeah, I think that's where the medical symbol comes from. Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, uh, like kind of a pole, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. Guys, are all dying. It's an emergency. There's urgency. You're flailing around. You're desperate. Now there's this kind of pole. And if you look to that, you will be saved. Here's the fascinating thing. It's a secondary solution. You got snakes biting you. What's the primary problem? Yeah, venom. I've got venom in me. Get the venom out. Someone like do the X, start sucking, you know, or, or whatever. But that's the real problem. Looking at the standard is, is a counterintuitive way of fixing the real problem. It's a secondary solution. Do you get that, that it's a secondary solution? See what the parallel is here now with Jesus. It says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Our problem with Jesus is that it's a secondary solution to our felt problem. You, me, the person sitting to your left and your right, our biggest issue with God is that he's not always giving us primary solutions, but secondary solutions. I've lost my job. I've lost my family. I've lost my health. My circumstances are dire. I can't go on because of what needs to happen. God, you need to fix my circumstances. And if you don't, I will be bitter. I will be angry. Our biggest issue with God is that God never really deals with the felt presenting need. He gives us a secondary solution. He says, you know what? Your real issue is that you're in the middle of the ocean. You're drowning. You're lost. But there's an eternal life that follows this one, and you need to be here with me. And here's the standard. Here's the thing that you look to. Here's how I'm going to save you from the situation that you're in. Not how I'm going to change your circumstances, but how I'm going to save you. And so Jesus says, I must be lifted up like that snake. The very next verse, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So the picture he conjures up is snakes biting people that are God's people. And God took Moses and and had him set up this kind of icon that if they looked at it, they'd be saved. And he says, like this, I've got to be set up. Why? Because God so loves the whole world 
that he doesn't want you to perish from the situation, the emergency that you're in. And so I'm going to be lifted up like that snake so that all who look on me might be saved and see the kingdom of God and go to heaven and know that relationship and be reconciled. That is what God is about. Do you see now my frustration with John 3.16 behind a uprights at a football game? It just doesn't have the story to it. There's, there's an urgency to where you're at. And, and Jesus is looking at Nicodemus, and he's going right to the heart of the matter and saying, you don't realize the urgency. Even though you're a Pharisee, this world is perishing. The people are being eaten up, and the thing that's going to save them is what God has brought me to do. I'm going to die. That's why I came. And when people look to me, they will not perish, but have everlasting life. did this, but that's only like half the sermon, so we're going to skip all the way down. Um, uh, elements of a story. I was watching, it was interesting, I've, uh, you know, you study this as you go through and stuff like that, but there's elements to a story, and there's usually a desired destination or location, right? The, the end, the happy, everything kind of comes together moment. I watched a movie recently with my wife called Australia. I don't know if you've seen that one, but uh, Faraway Downs is the big farm in the middle of Australia, and that's where, you know, the idea is if they could just live there and live there in peace happily ever after. That's kind of the resolution point. Does that make sense? And then there's a threat to that peace, that resolution point. And the whole movie is, this is now threatened by this. And the whole movie or, or the story, and a good story has these elements, has a hero or a galvanizing event where the threat is taken care of so that you can get to the resolution point. Does that make sense? That's story. And the idea here is we're living in that story. There's, there's a place that we ought to want to be with God, eternal life. Problem, the biggest problem I see coming, we're going to actually next year do a, a full-on, I think like six or seven-week series on... Uh, the idea of heaven and the afterlife. It might, might sound boring, but, but guess what? When you begin to lose confidence in Christianity or your religion, the first thing you really lose confidence in is where you're going. If I, if I can't really trust the scriptures, if I really don't know God exists, then you all of a sudden go, ooh, heaven. That means I really can't know anything about that. And if you don't have a hope in Christianity, for being with God or going to heaven, then the whole rest of it just doesn't make sense. And we've begun to stop talking about heaven in Christian circles or the idea of the afterlife or how, how we can be confident about it. And it's a, it's a big issue. So next year we're going to actually take and address it a lot. But the resolution point for Christianity, that peace, is being found with God in eternal life. The thing that threatens it is the curse or judgment or whatever, the sin that's, that's in this world that's perishing, that we might die. And the thing that God does is he sends the hero and the galvanizing event so that that threat can be dealt with so that we can then be brought to this position of peace, the resolution point. 
Does that make sense? So John 3.16, for God so loved the world. So this story is a good story. Okay? For God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, fall victim to the threat, but have everlasting life, eternal life with the Father. I love John 3.16 because the whole story, not not just the symbol, but the whole story of our salvation, the gospel, is carried in that verse. I love what Max Lucado says. He says, if you've never read the Bible, start with John 3.16. If you've read the whole Bible, come back to John 3.16. I mean, there's a richness to it. The, The phrase born again and being being birthed out of this situation into this new reality. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come because God has reconciled us to himself through Christ. You are new, you are different, your values, your priorities, what you do, whether you want to sin or not, the questions you ask are different because God has reached out and he's reconciled, he's bridged that divide, he's brought you over and you are now with him and you are a new creation where love, joy, peace, patience and goodness and mercy, self-control, these things are going to just come out of you. So that you're going to look like your father. You know when you are around someone, you begin to talk like them? I'm like the worst this way. I'm around someone with an accent, like Australian or British. And pretty soon I'm like talking like that. And I'm like, people are looking at me like, dude, you've never even been to Australia. What are you doing? Right? But I'm just one of those like uh, malleable people. Like when I'm around other people, I just pick up the mannerisms. Uh, My wife just absolutely made fun of me yesterday because I've started saying on the phone, um, the phrase, I'm cracking myself up. I don't even know what it means. I don't know where I got it. But every phone call, I'm like, ha I'm cracking myself up. And, and she's just like, you're an idiot. Um, she literally laughed for half an hour, and I felt really stupid and unmasculine and whatever. But I, I'm malleable. I think we all are. And when we're with God, he's a lot stronger and more dominant than we are. We begin to look like God. We reflect that image. It comes out in us, the accent, whatever. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come because God himself, who loves you, and loves the people sitting around you, has sent his son that we could be reconciled and brought to this resolution point where we can rest. It's a story. It's a good story. It's just compelling. And may we, as we go out and live, live out that life, that new life, that born-again life, with love and a concern for justice, and with peace and the ability to forgive and all the things that come with it so that people that see us will know that there's something real that's really going on in us. Let's pray. Father, um, save us from cliche Christianity. Give us an encounter with your son, with you and your love that is so compelling and dynamic and supernatural that everything before is before and everything after that is after that and the 
two are not the same. Uh, let me, let the people in this church truly be able uh, to live the lives that would reflect you, that you would desire for us, the kinds of people that are going to inherit the kingdom of God. Give us the humility and the teachability to learn the things about you that we don't know, that, that might even be obvious, but we've kind of just gotten in a rut and closed ourselves off to. Father, fill us with humility because if we're humble, you'll be able to lift us up. Give us humility. We pray this in Christ's name.